Welcome to Plodcast, episode 38. It's been a long, uh, variegated trip. Thank you for coming along with me. It's good to have you here. Thanks for listening. I want to talk a little bit uh, in this podcast about abolitionism, speaking uh, in this instance about pro-life abolitionism, um, abolitionism and the art of the deal. And I want to encourage Christians to uh, take a take a page from the playbook of uh, leftists and progressives. Well, not the whole page. There are some things that they do, um, not fearing God, that we can't do. But there are certain things that they do effectively and well, and we and we need to uh, learn to imitate them uh, in this. The Lord Jesus said that uh, the children of this age are oftentimes shrewder than uh, the children of light. So, uh, how can we uh, how can we draw a lesson from the left when it comes to political uh, political engagement on the pro life issue? So uh, there's a debate in pro-life circles between the incrementalists and the abolitionists, uh, the abolitionist movement, and the abolitionists don't want to settle for anything. They don't. They don't want to split the difference. They they're not interested in doing anything gradually. They want to introduce bills that outlaw abortion. They want to just keep it simple, cut and dried. There you go. So that's the abolitionist position. Now, uh, there are incrementalists who uh, want to fight the battle so slowly that they sometimes forget that they're fighting a battle. So the, at, the, at the one extreme, let's say you've got uh, abolitionists who go around the bend, uh, clinic bombers, murdering abortion doctors, that sort of thing. Uh, but then you've got uh, within the confines of the law, those who say that we need to outlaw human abortion now. And at the other end, you've got uh, the resistance uh, resistance to the pro-choice culture that is getting harder and harder to identify as meaningful resistance. Then the, the pos- position maybe in the middle, that's that's my position, middle of the road. I I like to say that I'm standing on the yellow line in the middle of the road. Extremism is to my right and left. So let's say um, in the middle is the position that I would argue for, which I call smash mouth incrementalism. That is, you take every gain that you can get, but you don't ever forget that the point of the whole thing is to outlaw human abortion, period. In other words, it's principially... Uh, abolitionist, uh, but tactically incrementalist. Now, um, I'm not bringing this up in order to um, uh, kick that debate off again. Uh, What I want to do is point something out about uh, what leftists and progressives do in issue with with regard to issues that are important to them. And that is the left. uh, Let's uh, I'm not using these terms pejoratively here. I'm just saying uh, uh, take extreme, not as in the sense of extremist, but extreme as in the sense of hardcore, do it now, we demand it now. You know, what do you want? Uh, abortion ended, when do you want it now? That sort of uh, hardcore extreme position. One of the things that the left does and does very well is they don't apologize for the, for the activists 
on the extreme edges of their movement. They they use the the people who are let, let's say you've got a um, an an environmental activist and he comes to the hearing. Uh, the county commissioners are having a hearing about some piece of land, and there's an there's an environmental activist who comes to the hearing and he speaks in complete sentences and he's got a coat and tie on and he's you know he's not out there um, on the extreme uh, skinny branches of the environmental movement. But one thing that you notice is let's say there's there is an extremist in your in your community agitating for you know he's demanding. That all the people, uh, all the people in your state, go back to Europe, and you know, he is demanding it all now. He's, he's not, de- he's not trying to protect the 100 acres. He's trying to, pre- he's demanding 100 million acres. So he's the extreme guy. The moderate guy, who is pressing um, for the incremental change, the 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 incrementalist, the environmental incrementalist doesn't apologize for the guy making the total demands, the extreme demands. In fact, he is utilizing them. So when an extreme uh, position, uh, an extremist throws down, uh, the moderate comes in. It's a good cop, bad cop uh, kind of negotiating technique. If you don't agree with the abolitionist uh, position, as I don't tactically, I agree with the abolitionist position in terms of what the goal is. Of course, that's what. If you're not trying to outlaw um, human abortion, then how can you call yourself pro-life? So I'm an abolitionist in that sense, but I have um, tactical differences. Nevertheless, I'm not going to disown a brother over tactical differences. So if if you're in a movement, this is this is the place where I would. Uh, I would divide from uh, a secular activist, and that is, if someone fighting for the same cause uh, that you're fighting for is doing something that's absolutely evil, uh, of course you need to repudiate that and disown that. But if someone is doing something that you think is ill-advised, or that won't work, or you're going to turn people off, or that extreme approach is going to set us back, um, I think it's really important for incrementalists not to apologize for the abolitionists. I, I, I think it's just wrong, wrong-headed. If we're, if we're fighting for the same thing and uh, they see you as compromised, that's, that's no cause, that's no basis for returning fire. If you think it's, if you think it's a uh, uh, good desired goal, but you differ with them tactically, you can, well, let them do what they're doing and you do what you're doing and utilize, use what they're doing uh, to help you do what you're doing. So they're demanding the, they're demanding the sun, moon, and stars uh, right now, and you, can, and you claim in your discussion with them, in your debate with them, that you're, they're not going to get that. You know, we have to we have to do this incrementally. We have to do this over the next three years, saving as many lives as we can. Well, if you think that they're asking for too much, if you think that they're demanding too much, then use what they're doing to help you do what you're doing. Don't don't 
undercut them or start a flame war on the right, uh, start a flame war, war in the in pro-life circles, it, uh, prove uh, prove your intentions, prove prove that you really are after uh, getting rid of as much uh, abortion as as is humanly possible for us to do. And one of the things that we can do to achieve that end is for incrementalists to be uh, one of the things that can help incrementalists to become more hardcore is to imitate and use and riff off of what the abolitionists are doing. Don't spend your time fighting the abolitionists. Spend your, um, spend your time, spend your energy fighting the pro-abortionists. And if you think somebody's tactically ill-advised, well, let them, you know, let them be tactically ill-advised. You can have a charitable debate in-house away from cameras and microphones with your brothers as far as it's possible with you. And if they don't want to talk to you because you're compromised, you can still, you can still use uh, what they are uh, doing. They go to the legislature and they testify to the legislature. They want to demand the sun, moon, and stars. And so you follow them and don't undercut them. But be aware that them demanding all of that, uh, everything, is going to help you get more than you would have gotten otherwise. That's how this kind of activism works. The, the left has done this to us on so many issues so many times. You would think that we would, um, we would have learned how it works by now. But alas, we haven't. So the book I want to talk about uh, today is um, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner. Now, uh, I'd seen that book long before I was Reformed or Calvinistic in my thinking. I had seen that book floating around. I'd, you know, I'd seen it there sitting on my parents' bookshelf, I think. And, um, okay, it was this scary thing. And, and I was not... Uh, I was not averse to reading books by Calvinists. In fact, I really, really liked books by Calvinists, Calvinists just not on Calvinism. I would read Calvinists on uh, politics, on foreign policy, on economics, on literature. I really liked the worldview approach that many Calvinists had, the Kuyperian worldview approach that they had. But I was pretty dead set against um, Calvinism proper, Calvinistic soteriology. And the sticking point for me uh, was the doctrine of uh, limited atonement, what, what's popularly called limited atonement, what I now, now would call definite atonement. That was the thing that stuck in my craw. And uh, so I was a conservative Arminian guy, and someone in our community began teaching um, what's called openness theology, that that God does not uh, know the future exhaustively. The future is not a thing that's there to be known. Uh, it has not yet occurred. God doesn't know it. You don't know it. God can troubleshoot and and project better than we can, but it's still an unknowable uh, thing, and that chance governs some things. So if you've got a stadium full of people with free will and the stadium empties out, God could predict, being a very good statistician, God could predict where they're all likely to go, but God doesn't uh, know with absolute certainty where they're all likely to go. So chance governs some things. Now, uh, when I encountered that 
teaching, uh, th- this openness teaching, it, uh, it appalled my evangelical sensitivities. And I thought, ha, 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 uh, or words th- or something to that effect. And I, I just didn't have the wherewithal to answer it. Uh, given my conservative, Bible-based Arminianism, I and and my commitment to free will, what I my nebulous thoughts about what free will uh, might be at that time, my commitment to these things precluded me from being able to answer this. I didn't like I didn't like the idea of chance governing some things at all, but I couldn't answer it given my premises, given uh, given where I was coming from. I couldn't answer it. So I remember thinking something like, well. I don't like uh, Calvinists on anything to do with Calvinism proper because of what I was assuming they taught about um, uh, the atonement. But I thought something like, well, at least the Calvinists would be good on this chance business. You know, um, maybe I can learn something from them. So I, I, I thought I'd walk up to the edge of the precipice and, and peek over, uh, look over, uh, and see what they had to say about chance. So I read... Uh, I read the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner, read through it, and just as I had expected, uh, there there was a lot of wonderful uh, textual citations and pointing to uh, the, the Bible's teaching that chance uh, does not govern anything. God governs all things. So I was richly rewarded uh, for my guess that the Calvinists would be good on this chance business. But I read the whole book, and I so I read the whole thing, and it, and he worked through um, what are called the five points of Calvinism, the atonement included, and um, and I thought I, I had my I had my guard up, but unfortunately, having your guard up and um, and having your prejudices intact are sometimes the same thing. I remember telling people. Um, that it was a really good book. I enjoyed the book, but boy, was the chapter on the atonement lame. I I said um, he he hard he he scarcely quoted scripture at all. I think he quoted scripture maybe twice, and that was you know, and that was it. It was the rest of the book was so so biblical. I thought, but this was just lame. Uh, I won't go into the all the gnarly story of how, how I fell down the Calvinistic stairs, as I say, hitting my head on every step. But I, um, sometime after this, I became, I became a Calvinist, and reluctantly, and it was with a, a lot of fuss and bother, and was, there was a good deal of yelling. Um, but I, so, so I became a Calvinist. And then um, sometime after that, I think a, f- a few years into my Calvinist uh, era, I thought, I forget what possessed me, but I thought, you know, I'm going to read Bettner's book again. I'm going to, I'm going to read that book again. I'm going to revisit it. And I read through, uh, I read through it again. And I got to the chapter on the atonement and imagine my surprise when I found that that chapter was bristling with scripture passages. It had scripture everywhere. (laughs) Bible verses, Bible verses, Bible verses. And I, had gone through it the first time, thinking this doctrine cannot be biblical. Since it's not biblical, there aren't any Bible verses that teach it. And if there aren't any Bible verses that teach it, and he's teaching it, there must not be any Bible verses here. 
Well, the second time through, uh, my, my eyes were open. He, Bettner was uh, scripture everywhere. It's a wonderful book. So if anybody is um, interested in a good introductory treatment of the doctrines of grace, the, the, the Reformed doctrine of predestination, there's a, there's a section near the back on Calvinism and history. Uh, this, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. It really is a classic. It's um, very fine. I commend it to you. The, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner. So here's our segment on hamartiology, our study of sin in the New Testament. We're looking at various uh, scriptural, uh, we're looking at the various Greek words that describe different sinful conditions and attitudes. And um, uh, the word for pollution is alisgema, alisgema, and it's used one time. So alisgema is used one time in the New Testament. That one time is in Acts 15.20. The decision of the Jerusalem Council was that the Gentiles needed to abstain from certain basic things, among them the pollutions of idols. However, however much idolatry may appeal to um, that which is primitive and therefore pure in our thinking, the end result of all forms of idolatry is always pollution, usually sexual. So um, idols are frequently idols of nature worship, and people who worship nature think they're getting back to that which is clean and pure, pristine, um, not... Um, not corrupted. We we tend to think that uh, if I took that if I took that word pollution and asked people to do um, you know free associate uh, free associate uh, whatever comes to mind with that word pollution, what would probably come to mind is some sort of some sort of industrial landscape. But uh, I think we have to be wary of nature worship going going green. Going uh, into uh, a worship of, uh, you know, uh, a pantheistic worship of all things or Mother Earth is, that's been done before. And it winds up with pollution. It winds up in pollution. Alice Gema. God in the time of the sickness. God in the dark. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.